It is dawn when the first signs of life begin in the small house in Vienna. It is a winter morning at the close of the 18th century, and a young man is rising from his bed, stiff from the cold. The immigrant son of a drunken, abusive father, he escaped to the city at the age of 21 to pursue a career in music, and is already renowned as a virtuoso pianist. He dresses and walks to his kitchen, where he places a glass jar on the wooden tabletop and counts out precisely 60 beans of coffee, one by one. A minute passes. He places the beans into a French balloon coffee maker, what we would now call a siphon, and prepares the hot drink that will sustain him through a morning of brilliant creative work. This man will go on to compose some of the greatest music ever written. His name is Ludwig van Beethoven. Why did Beethoven count out 60 beans of coffee every day of his waking adult life? What was the reason for this precise and eccentric daily ritual? How indeed do we all form the habits that fill our lives? And how can we take control of these behaviors to become more productive and fulfilled people? I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasbetayev, host of Found in Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the Picte Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Today, we're investigating the science of habits and behavioral change. As the coronavirus pandemic continues and we adjust to life in a new world, our old familiar patterns of behavior have been disrupted. From how we commute to work, to how we exercise, socialize, and even educate our children. At times like this, change can feel like something that happens to us. But in this episode, you can discover how to take control of change for yourself. We brought together BJ Fogg, the legendary Stanford researcher whose class inspired the founders of Instagram, creator of the Tiny Habits Method of Behavioral Change, and the author of a new book with that same name. Hermine Ibarra, the Charles Handy Professor of Organizational Behavior at the London Business School and leading authority on leadership and career development, who previously served on the INSAD and Harvard Business School faculties, and Alexander Tavassi, a global strategist at Big Day Wealth Management and the head of the CIO office. Together, their ideas provide a blueprint for changing your life and work, one small step at a time. We're going to start with BJ. What is your definition of a habit? It's a behavior you do quite automatically without deliberating or making a decision. Beautifully put into my next question, which is what is the difference for you between habit and decision making? How much you think about it. You know, so a habit is something that you might do so automatically you forgot you did it. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, so I map it out in a model where it's a spectrum of automaticity. And very, very strong habits are on one side. In fact, they're like reflexes. And on the other side are decisions or choices that you deliberate about. And a behavior can fall anywhere along that spectrum. Do you think they're connected? Oh, yeah. They're all behaviors. And on th in this particular model, it's how automatically you do it. And what I like about this model, even though it's super simple, is it shows there's 
no magical moment in time when something goes from a regular behavior to a habit. It's all a matter of degree. It's a spectrum. So how did your interest in habit formation begin? Well, I grew up in Fresno, California in a Mormon family. And in that religion, there's a lot of behavioral constraints and behavior change. And in that religion, there's this thing of, a lot about self-improvement. Steve Covey is a Mormon, for example, and the Marriott's and things like that. And so there's just part of the culture of, you know, how do you, like very early on, my father would sit me down and say, what are your goals? You know, and I was just like this kid. And you were trained to set goals and all this kind of stuff. So just through that, you know, being a Mormon, growing up in California in this kind of environment and family, it was just something that was just part of what I grew up with. So what is this strategy that you've come up with? Boom, fast forward, 50 some odd years. <laughs> so in Tiny Habits, I explained this new way to create habits uh, that is really easy to do and sometimes fun if you do it in a particular way. And you don't have to rely on willpower. Uh, you just take whatever behavior you, you want, new habit, scale it back to be really, really tiny, really simple, as easy as possible. So instead of reading a chapter in a book, you might just read one sentence. In fact, there was a time when I wanted to read more and I scaled it back to just opening the book was the habit. Then you find where it fits naturally in your routine. What does it come after? Maybe after you sit down on the bus or maybe after you turn off the TV news. And then you wire it in through a technique called celebration. So it's bringing those three hacks together. That's the tiny habits method. Yeah, I've been reading your, your book. I've been fascinated to find a lot of habits that I've been trying to change have actually started to change since reading them. Yay. And one of the things that really helped was the Maui Bam. habit. Yeah. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, I give a TED Talk about why it's called the Maui habit. But the habit goes like this. After my feet touch the floor in the morning, you say, it's going to be a great day. Those seven words. And in my book, Tiny Habits, that's the only habit that I prescribe. The rest of the book is about how to create any habit that you want. And here's this method and step-by-step -step process. But early on in the book, you know, here's this really simple habit that takes about three seconds. And it's helped many, many people, including myself. And so early in the book, I prescribe that. Say, hey, start doing this. And in this book, Tiny Habits, you say people change because they feel good rather than bad. Can you expand on yeah. this? Yeah, so traditional ways of behavior change, we're led to believe that it's about willpower and you set yourself up or these lofty goals and if you don't reach them, you might feel shame or guilt or what have you. And those ways don't work very well. And so with tiny habits, you actually focus on feeling good. So this is one of the hacks, the celebration, is to cause yourself to feel a positive emotion which then wires in the habit. So it's emotions that create habits. In Tiny Habits, there's a specific technique where you do that. Now, so you do that for the functional purpose of wiring in the habit, but it also has these other positive effects in your life. The ability to feel good, uh, to not resist that feeling. I know some people do, and especially, <laughs> okay, can I say here in the UK, like, so I've coached 40,000 people in this method, and for years I've heard people from, The UK say, well, BJ, we're not like you Californians. But yes, you do have ways of celebrating and recognizing that you've succeeded. You just have to tap into that. But if we are so in tune with our emotions and we want but to do not. habits. Well, Keep going. <laughs> that, yeah, that's my question. If we want to do habits that make us feel good, why do we constantly do 
things that make us feel bad, like binge or not answer that email immediately after you get it? Bam, that is such a big question. I invite other people to join me in answering <laughs> this. I, I think for many behaviors, we have conflicting motivations. Part of us wants to do it. Part of us doesn't want to do it. We have hope that if we do X, work out, we'll feel better. We have fear that if we go to the gym, we'll look stupid. So there's conflicting motivations. And I think that's just the reality of, of many types of behaviors or habits that we either have or we want to have. Ermina, do you have any thoughts on this? So I'll give you an example from me that has nothing to do with my work. But I have finally, at this age, come to the realization that if I don't exercise in the morning, it's not going to happen because one thing leads to another. Now, why don't I exercise in the morning? Well, I don't exercise in the morning because that's not the time when I feel most ready to kind of jump into it. But also because that's the time when I have always done my most productive intellectual work. And I have valued that. And that's my identity. And my identity is not a gym person. And so I have always prioritized the going to my computer and working on whatever I'm writing. And so the other thing doesn't get to the top of the priority list. And so, so I think it's, you know, at least in, in what I see, it's about thinking about how the different things that you're trying to do come together and where is it that you sabotage and what that says about the priorities you have. Or prioritize. Yeah. yeah. What are some of the craziest habits you've tried to create in your research? Can I confess one that I'll be embarrassed about later? So after years of using the tiny habits method to create habits in my own life, I kind of ran out of things to do. <laughs> it's like, okay, now what? But I know that behavior changes a skill. Habit formation is a skill. And I didn't want those skills to get rusty. So I was looking around for habits to do. And I know it's like, what? Just like, okay, so like piano playing is a skill, right? So you might, you want to keep at the top of your game. So you pick little songs you might just do as exercises. So these were basically habit exercises. And the most embarrassing one, and we might as well go there, is I would put on my T-shirt inside out and my underwear inside out. Not backwards, but inside out. And functionally, it's the exact same garment. But it just to keep practicing habits, I would do that one. That was kind of embarrassing, but you asked. <laughs> Great thinkers throughout history have followed BJ's anchor moment of habit formation, a natural place in your current routine that triggers a new habit. Like laying out your gym clothes at the end of the bed might anchor you to go for that early morning run. The father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, had a particularly eccentric anchor for brushing his teeth. It is said that his wife used to put toothpaste on his toothbrush every morning, jumpstarting his day. Imagine that! So let's move on to Herminia. BJ's work is all about changing your life. And your work might not deal directly with habits, but you are in the research of changing your life and changing your career. So tell us a little bit about your work around career development and specifically whether you think this has anything to do with habitual routines. Of course, I mean, of course it does. So what I do is I look at 
how people make big transitions in their professional life. And that could be moving into a different line of work. That could be doing a major career change. A lot of people become unhappy in what they're doing and want to do something else. Most recently, I'd looked at how people um, step up to a bigger leadership role and how they shift from contributing more as an expert around the content to how they start to contribute around leading people and leading organizations. All of those things are big changes in that they're, they're big changes, but they're also small changes in how you, uh, what you prioritize, what you value, how you see yourself adding value. And they're all changes that are transitions. They take a while because you have to not only engage in different behaviors, you actually have to come to see that those behaviors that are not habitual, that are not the things that you do naturally, that haven't been your strengths are actually things that you should do and invest in. And the hard part about that is that you're not going to be good at it right away. And so the feel good factor isn't there because you've got to do things to learn them. You've got to do things that you don't do very well. And you're not even so sure it's so valued, you know, like take a simple example, somebody who has to delegate more and be less of a micromanager. They know kind of in their mind intellectually that that's the right thing to do and that it empowers people. But fundamentally, in their gut and in their experience, they don't because they know they do it better. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that ultimately, that's why people don't delegate because they do it better. But you do it better today and tomorrow and the next day. And when you're still doing it better two years from now, the opportunity cost to you, let alone to the other people you haven't empowered, mm-hmm. is enormous yeah. because that's not time you're spending doing other things. And so it is not exactly changing your habits, but it is how do you get yourself taking small steps, because all of these big changes are made of small steps, that gradually allow you to experiment with behaviors that aren't habitual. And as you start to get good outcomes from them, good experiences, it is that that actually leads you to change your mind about whether it's a good thing to do or not really. And how would you say you would get the motivation even if you don't have the feel-good feeling, how do you get the motivation to do these acts? Hitting your head against the wall a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, you know. usually it's because you know something isn't working. You're getting negative feedback. Um, it's just, it's obviously not working. And, you know, the first reaction is, it's not me, it's not me, or I'm not good at that, or... And then after a while, you start to say, well, maybe I should give something else a try. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, wow. that's, that, that, that is ultimately where it starts. When people's sense of urgency about doing something different starts to rise is, is when you start to get a little bit of, of traction. Now, like in, in your work, sometimes it comes because you've gone to a new environment and all of a sudden you see a great possibility that you had envisioned before you get, you, you see or find a role model and you say, wow, you know, that's a revelation. So there's, there's lots of ways it happens, but oftentimes, at least in what I see is you're tired of, of repeating the same mistake or you, doing the same thing and expecting a different result. A big part of your book, Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader, is about having the courage to do these new things. And You talk a lot about this theory called the outside principle, which I found intriguing. Can you expand on that for us? 
Yeah. And it just basically means get out of your head and try things out. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of what we call today fast prototyping, except but with yourself. And so rather than try to figure out in your head, okay, this is the new perfect career for me, or this is the kind of leader I'd like to be. You know, it's, it, it's all quite abstract. Actually take some steps, small wow. steps, and see where they lead you and see how that feels and see if you want to take another step in that direction or go somewhere else. And ultimately, it's going to be your experience that changes your mind, that, that, that leads you to move in that direction. So that, that's what outside means. It's, it's, it's learning new things by doing new things, learning by doing and letting that guide you. Because a lot of the things that the people that I teach and research want to change, they're abstract things. I want to yeah. be a better leader. What's that? Well, try maybe being a better listener or try, try specific behaviors and then see how that fits and how that works. And from there, develop your ideas about where you want to go. And let me call out some of the overlaps in our work uh, along those lines. So certainly with Tiny Habits, you pick aspirations or things you want to achieve, and they can be big things. And then very similarly, it's try stuff out. And so there is an experiment of does this habit work for me or not work for me and so on. And then the don't expect yourself to be perfect as you do this. There's going to be twists and turns. And if you think you're going to be perfect, well, get rid of that idea. And you're going to figure it out by trying. And there's going to be mistakes. And you don't blame yourself for those mistakes. So that's at least three ways that the way we're looking at change uh, parallels quite yeah. closely. The other thing with the small steps is in the, the people that I, that I work with, you know, they know some of these things are the right answer. Oh. But at the, on the <laughs> other hand, they're not so sure they really want to be that person. You know, so so for example, yes, I want to be more empowering, and, and but at the same time, I don't want to lose accountability, and maybe I need to be much more hands-on. So so they're not they're worried they'll go be too soft or you know, something, and so the small steps approach actually allows them to not commit whole hog. I'm just going to try it out and see what happens. I'm not committing to be that person. I'm just going to play a little bit. I'm going to experiment a little and see where that leads me. Nice. I'm going to read a quote from your book that I found fascinating. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions on, on it. Inertia, resistance, habitual routines, and entrenched culture slow the participants' progress at every turn. So my main question here is, what do you think about following habits that you don't really know are inhibiting you? first of all. And second, do you think that certain habits keep you from growing your career? Right. So there's a lot in that. So in order to grow in your career, you have to grow. <laughs> you have to stretch. And that means doing things that are new and different. Otherwise, you don't learn anything. So in, it's, it's an interesting dilemma because we talk a lot about focusing on your strengths. But your strengths can get you into a lot of trouble because they can blind you to a lot of possibilities that you never come around to developing. And so when you're working exclusively from your strengths, it becomes more reflexive, it becomes less conscious, you're kind of clicking into what you always do. And you don't necessarily notice that things are changing around you and perhaps making some of those competencies or some of those strengths less relevant. So that's one way in which they get you into trouble. The other thing is because most of the people that I work with are in organizations 
organizations also have strengths and habits and they get baked into what we call the culture and the way things are done. And those things also reinforce a set of behaviors that can be very counter to what it is that you're trying to change. If I, I can give you an example. Um, I've been working a good bit on the whole transformation of Microsoft and what has happened. And what they've wanted to do very simply, as their CEO talks about it, is shift from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Mm. Because as technology advanced and they moved out of the simply selling Windows boxes, they had to learn to do stuff they'd never done before, but they were such a perfection-oriented culture that they couldn't make that shift. And so a lot of the things they tried to do failed. So they start, okay, we're going to operate differently. We're going to ask more questions. We're going to tolerate more mistakes we want to actually encourage certain kinds of failure that come from experimenting. So they're chugging along and you see these senior leaders very wholeheartedly wanting to do this. And all of a sudden they start seeing everything about how we operate reinforces being the smartest person in the room. For example, the way we do business review meetings, we prepare for three months for something that needs to be a perfect performance rather than being an exploration of why are we being successful here and less successful there. And so they started to see that these habits are baked in and your own competencies and habits get reinforced because the organization wants you to do it. It wants you to deliver value. It wants you to show uh, what a good member you are, how well you know how to play their games. And so that's when it gets very dangerous for everybody. That's very interesting because in the financial industry, the road is paved with companies which were unable to change because the cost of change was seen as something so difficult to engineer initially and the company kept doing what they used to do very well. But when the world changed, when the industry changed, they failed. And some of them have disappeared. The opportunity cost of doing what you're not great at is huge. Absolutely. And so you, you don't pay it until you fail very, very miserably. Well, and the personal price. So one of the studies I did with Tiny Habits was to help nurses and people working in emergency departments change their behavior to reduce stress. And so as I went in and uh, as we were preparing to launch the study and the training of these people, what I discovered is that it was part of the culture. They do 12-hour shifts. Part of the culture was not to take bathroom breaks because that's how they were showing they were working so hard and serving the patients. And they, as a collection of people, thought, well, if I don't drink any water, then I won't have to go to the bathroom. So it led to them depriving themselves of water so they didn't take bathroom breaks so they looked good to each other but the result of that and they knew this full well these are nurses that they would just it had physical toll on them not just while they're at work but at home and so part of the training was to help them kind of untangle that and get rid of that status of never taking a break or never going to the bathroom and encouraging taking sips of water. So yes, institutionally, but also there's a personal toll of to some course. of these things that are just, huge, you know, they knew better, but it yeah. just wasn't, they didn't want to have a low status. Ask your colleagues to come to a meeting when they ask you, what should I prepare? And the answer is whatever you think is going to be necessary. And if mm. you have nothing, don't prepare anything. That's surprising <laughs> how the dynamic of the meeting completely changes mm -hmm. and the willingness to contribute completely changes as well. Have you done that? Yes, that's fantastic. Well, this is a, a great transition. I want to move on to you, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you so much, Herminia. What is your experience with habit formation and personal growth? 
think initially you need habits because when you come from your studies and you join a new organization, you have to understand how to behave. And that becomes your daily routine. Understand, adapt, and conform to. That's the initial stage of your career. But then afterwards, that can be a big break to your career because what you have done, of course, is changing. People may ask you to have leadership or to have a teams. What you used to be good at is not what is required for the next step. And then you have to change those habits, understand what is going to be the next step, and allow people to delegate and to come to the, to the board with, with new ideas. And I think this is just essential. And specifically, what is your experience in habit formation in the financial industry? Oh, well, in the financial industry, you meet a lot of experts. And they have always to show you that they are the experts. <laughs> and I've shared so many meetings where people are supposed to give us information. And you have people around the table who ask questions by asking, don't you think that? Or don't you think that is not the question? Is I want to tell you what I think, but I'm not ready to get your information. So being around with experts is just great. But I think the ultimate expert is a person who comes in a room and asks open questions, try to get the most out of what the people are trying to give to him, both clients, but also, of course, experts in investing. And by then, you completely change the dynamic. On that note, I wanted to ask you to give our audience some insights on what habits make you a better uh, person in the business world. Right. I think listening is, is absolutely key because our clients have been successful before meeting us. We usually meet them after they have made a, a lot of money. So understanding why and how, what their problems were before is absolutely essential. A lot of them were, were entrepreneurs, hence they have succeeded in building, developing, uh, bringing the company what they used to have at that stage. And hence we learn a lot from them. So I would say the half of our job is to bring people inside in a financial world, try to find the best solution for them. But we do get a lot from them as well in the interactions we have with our clients. Let me build on that a little bit. So we're in a, having this discussion in a beautiful room here in London, but just outside there's some construction going on. So you may hear the pounding. And I think it does relate to habits and the balance between habits and improvisation or innovation in a really good way. You know, you build a structure like they're building by us. And by building a structure, creating an environment, you instill certain kinds of behaviors that become habits. But if you want to innovate or if you want to do something new, that built structure or that culture can actually inhibit that kind of thing. So in some ways, and I'll talk about this in a more personal way, it's finding the balance between my habits or the way I've structured my environment to make certain behaviors easy and certain behaviors hard, and then having that open space to allow for innovation and exploring new things. And finding that balance, I think, is an ongoing challenge. Because if something's working really well, well, why would we change it? Well, it's going to vary by time period. There are stable periods in your career and what you're trying to do in your life where it's really great to have that structure. And there's other periods where you're trying to make real changes and actually undoing some of those habits is a great place to start. Do you find, so in my work and looking at how motivation happens, it goes up and down over time. Surprisingly, that had not been studied academically until recently. There was no Uh, theoretical uh, notion or experiment, understanding fluctuations of motivation, although that's common and we all experience it. In your work, do you find that there's these certain moments 
of crisis or change that you can characterize? Like there's these three things that happen or life periods. Is there a way to kind of boil They're that down? They're very different for people. You know, for some, some people there are, you talk about this, there is that epiphany or that, yeah. that thing that happens in which it all kind of gels into place. But having actually studied this a little bit more systematically, there's lots of people who have similar moments or kind of dramatic events that happen in their lives and then they don't change subsequently. So, so sometimes that, that dramatic moment can lead to huge change and for other people, not at all. And it has to do, this is where it connects to you. It has to do with whether you take advantage of that event or that moment to make a first step nice, and then a second yeah. one. And so if you use it, then you can kind of get going. If you don't, in a week and two weeks, depending on how big the event was, it's just not that salient and motivating anymore. So in my work, I talk about that shift as motivation wave. Yeah. So calling it the motivation wave. Mm. And there are eight types, but not specific instances. It's more of a, a, a dimensional framework I've created. And very much like you're saying, the wave can be there. The energy can be there to surf but you may not have the surfboard or you may choose not to and the wave will just pass under you. Mm. Whereas in a different situation, it's like, boom, I'm here, right time, right place, right, motivation's exactly. up, boom, I'm gonna catch that wave and I'm gonna go somewhere. One man who had a peculiar way of getting things done was Ernest Hemingway. One of the world's most succinct storytellers of all time, Hemingway found it very difficult to concentrate while sitting at a desk. To counter this, he made it a habit to write standing up, facing a chest-high wooden bookshelf where he would place his typewriter and a reading board. Hemingway certainly did not have a health and safety official assessing his workstation posture twice a year, but he must have realized that working while sitting down was not good for his productivity. As we all struggle to find new routines in our new working from home realities, we might learn something from this infamous early adopter of the standing desk. Incidentally, Winston Churchill was another. So, Alexander, do you think we should all be consciously trying to challenge our habits? I think it's essential. Uh, I'll give you a very clear example. And that was back in 2008, 2009. We had a major financial crisis. Those who couldn't change their habits missed it and probably had a very big problems in terms of investment. The way we used to work is not valid anymore today. Things that were not supposed to happen were repeated many times over a few years. So you had to change it. But that means you have to change the way you look at markets, the way you look at your financial results, but also the way you manage people. Uh, we were talking about it. We have a whole new generation of people who are entering the workforce who were not there 10 years ago. Their way of interacting with people, of communicating, has nothing to do with the previous generation. So if you don't do it, most likely you're not going to be an effective leader and that has consequences for how you run your business, of course. And I'm chuckling a little bit because these are like my students going to the workforce. It's that age and they have different expectations, you know? Completely, <laughs> completely. But at the same time, I've never seen a generation of people so ready to accept, to have no preconceived ideas. So it's a fantastic job to work with those people because they bring a lot to the whole conversation, to the experience. So is there hope? of better habits being formed? I hope so. 
<laughs> you know, I, I'm really mixed on this. So, you know, you talk about, you know, students I teach at Stanford and where they're at. And I rewind, you know, 20 years when I started teaching there and they're different people. There's much, I hate to say this, there's much more handholding needed today to those students. Yeah, safe spaces. <laughs> yeah. And it used to be like, here's the assignment, turn in your homework. I'm not following up. You'll just fail this if you don't turn it in. And I've learned, maybe I've been reprogrammed, rehabitualized that I'm going to be a little more accommodating, which I wouldn't have ever dreamed of, um, you know, in 1999. Um, but I think... <sighs> Part of it is just seeing what's going on with social media and how that is so different in their lives than the way it functioned in my life and what the expectations that set and the pressure it creates for them. And it's just different. And so I try to be empathetic and not be judgmental about that because, and it came to me pretty early, like when Facebook was pretty early and I was exploring that in my lab in my class, one of my students made clear to me, and this would be like 2006, we are always being observed. We can't go to a party and just let loose because there's going to be a picture and it's going to be posted to Facebook. And that floored me. It's like, you're college students. And it's like, yeah, no, we always know we're going to be watched. So that was a surprise, but it's like, yeah, that's what's happening. And then the next thing, when I went to my class and I said, well, how do you deal with this? Their response at the time was, well, when something gets posted negative about me, I just flood the channel with positive things. So the negative thing gets diluted. I thought that was terribly insightful, but <laughs> both of those things were shockers to me. So yeah, it is a different world than to bring my, you know, you know, I'm in my 50s, that mindset and expect my students to have that approach to the world. That's just not the right way. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I'm a millennial and I was going to, you know, comment on that saying nowadays we leverage that. So you use all of the attention for good things. So you are being constantly observed, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. You can use that it feels to bad. promote yourself. It feels, <laughs> it feels bad. bad to me. I like privacy. You yeah. create your own brand with it. Yeah, yeah. And I admire how... I guess, fluid and adept people are. And so I finally decided to get back on Instagram. Okay, so I, I started early because one of my students was the co-founder. And it's like, no, 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 I don't really want to do it. Why would I do that, right? But then with the book and really my responsibility to share my work, like I'm going to get back on board. And so I was with my nieces and they were just showing me all this stuff to do on Instagram that I had no idea how to do. And it was just, it was just like a revelation how good they are and how natural it is for them to think of it. And I have to be quite deliberate. It's not quite a habit for me to do these things yet. Well, I want to end with a great quote that I read in Erminia's book by Stephen Johnson. Chance favors the connected mind. Do you have anything to say to that before we finish? Well, what that refers to is how much uh, we get out of our relationships with people and the extent to which a lot of our ideas and opportunities and serendipity come through the networks that we have, the relationships that we have, and how important that is for anything that has to do with creativity or, or innovation. Anything to say, Alexander? I think the good work, the network is absolutely essential, but you have to give as much as you can get from it. And it's both a contribution and take that you have to do. And then it becomes an effective and efficient network. Well, you can have all kinds of effective or ineffective habits with regard to your um, relationship building and networking. 
And the more we go into technology, the more I'm reassured because what is essential, what remains in the end is people's relationship. Now, whether we talk, whether we write, whether we put pictures, that is essential. And when we meet with people, the first 30 seconds are so important. That remains. And I think this is essential in the way we build relationships with people. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were BJ Fogg, Ermine Ibarra, and Alexander Tapasi. This series is brought to you by the PICTEC Group in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Rasvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, we'll explore the uses and abuses of big data with award-winning novelist Joanna Cavena, computer scientist Eva Alexander de Montjoy, and PICTES Chief Data Officer Marie Nemond. Thank you for listening. <laughs>